Welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where we discuss your favorite genre films and indie TV. I am your host, Lydia, and across the internet from me is our co-host... Joseph, hello. Hi, hello. How are you? Hey, hi, how are you? Joseph here is our resident philosopher and sci-fi fantasy expert. And uh, Lydia has a hard-on for... <laughs> you couldn't even get it out. No, you couldn't even. I'm done. Um, as soon as you said hard on, I was gonna say Agatha Christie of all things. And I'm like, you don't even like it's not Agatha true. Christie. I don't. Yeah, I don't. So I was like, well, this I is mean, stupid. I appreciate her for her craft, but I'm not a fan. You could have literally said hard um, on for horror. It's true. it's, it's an alliteration. Horror. Like, why would you? Some, was, what's some good true crime killers? Could have thrown in, you know, you could be okay, one of those I people. Don't have send love a letters out to for serial killers. Yeah, there no. you go. To, no, thank you. Uh, you know, I like true crime, but if anything, I have a hard on for FBI profilers. True. Watch a lot of Criminal Minds, and I read a lot of John Douglas books. Show some respect. <laughs> but today <laughs> we're gonna be talking about a sci-fi, a weird one from. Netflix. I think it's a Netflix original. Probably should have double checked that. Um, it is. It is. It okay. had the N in the corner. Okay. Perfect. Um, called the At Discovery. least one of us pays attention. But before that, we're going to talk about what we've watched this week. So I love so much that like before we started recording, you're like, I really want to make things like more conversational, and you functionally could not have made that sound more scripted. <laughs> it's not scripted though. So. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, maybe look inward on that criticism, like, a little bit. No, okay. <laughs> People need structure at the beginning, you know? They need to understand. I, I just love, like, again, with the assumption that, like, every time the only people who listen to this podcast are, like, new people. I'm sure we have at least one person who consistently no, no, no. understands the format. Okay, that isn't my assumption. It's it's just, it's that feeling of comfort being like, oh, okay, I did click on the episode. I know what this is about. And now we're going to do the tangents forever and maybe at some point get to what we need to talk about, you know? So like every other podcast format? I just need the reassurance that in three hours into the podcast, eventually there'll be every, the topic. So like the format of literally every other podcast, you mean? Yeah. The okay. like standard okay. podcast format? Okay. I think well, you're the only one who needs structure <clears throat> here. I guess I'll go first since someone... <laughs> 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 the Dip whole beginning of the turn. podcast is just Lydia shitting on just No, no, no. That's not fair. Okay. <laughs> What'd you watch? Uh, what did I watch? Um, what do you want to talk about? Fuck, there's so many things I want to talk about. Okay, so I watched a lot of horror, but I'm going to start mm-hmm. off on a non-horror thing so that I'm not, like, totally obliterating this segment. Um, I watched uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Me too. New Netflix movie. Oh, shit. Now, see? Here, we can have a conversation. Look. Look at that. It just happened organically. <laughs> You're going to cut out so much of my audio. Yeah, it'll just be me today. Um, Lydia was away for today's episode, so... 
I did a solo episode because Lydia was being a bitch. Well, no, we always keep that stuff in. And then when I'm being a bitch, that's just slipped away, somehow edited out. I don't know why. Like, stop making me look bad. You're just as much of a dick. Okay. Um, I'm just Okay, so yeah. So we both- I'm just a cutie. That's true. I wouldn't say cutie. I would agree with pretentious, though. That's pretty (laughs) on brand for you. Um, Okay, so we both watched The Trial of the Chicago 7. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you thought of it. I I have some feelings, I think. I really liked it. It felt very Netflix. I don't know how to explain what I mean by that, but there's like a sense in which- I know exactly what you mean. The cameras and like, it's very like a character drama. Okay. Tell me it didn't feel like Netflix and Eddie Redmayne were like sucking dick for an Oscar. Because that's what it felt like to me. Oh, really? I'm not even saying it was bad, but it just felt like Oscar bait. Especially in a year where like not that many movies have come out. And then they drop this like movie that fits very well into the current social climate. Yes, that's very true. Um... And has Eddie Redmayne, who I swear has been, like, begging for an Oscar oh, for the last, like, true. fucking ten years. And then it's, like, the cinematography, the music, the character-driven plot. Like, all of it just feels like Netflix quaking to be accepted for an Oscar in a year where almost everything has to had to have been a digital release and not a theatrical release, forcing the Academy to, like, accept non-theatrical released films. It just, it just felt like it had everything. They felt like Argo to me. Do you remember when Argo mm-hmm. came out and it won Best Picture and it wasn't even that good of a movie, but you were like, yeah, I can understand why it got nominated and picked because it just feels like it did everything humanly possible to lick the ass of like the fucking Academy. That's what this movie feels like. I'd be really surprised if this did well in the Oscars, but it's not so much that because I think it's a bad movie. I actually think it's quite good, and especially who I was shocked by was Sash Bear Cohen, who I thought was like, really good as like this weird character he is a genuinely good actor i mean he plays a lot of like he does a lot of dumb movies and shit but he is like an a like an actually good actor yeah so that was a really cool surprise and i really i, I obviously think that the actual uh idea of it which is if you if you don't know the premise of it is that 1968 mm-hmm. there's protests for the vietnam war in the u.s and there was a march to Chicago to yeah, protest it. Was, it which I mean, I'm not sure why the Chicago, movie is called but... the Trial of the Chicago Seven. Yeah. Well, yeah. um, and it was it was in Chicago because the GOP delegate was meeting there at a hotel in right. Chicago to discuss that. their plans for the Vietnam War. Okay, so yeah, so they're gonna so they wanted to have the protest close to that hotel in order to be seen for the protest yeah, at, at Grant Park or something, I think. But, uh, and so the seven are not people who necessarily knew each other very well, although some of them did. It is um, the leaders of different groups who are each of them bringing a large amount of people to protest. Mm -hmm. Um, And then this crazy law (laughs) that they all got on trial for, which was that they conspired to incite violence across state lines. A law that I want to point out was specifically passed for racist purposes right. solely to try and end the civil rights movement that occurred earlier in the same decade. Like, that's the entire reason for this specific law that was ever passed. I'm not even sure if it was repealed, so, if I'm being honest, but I think it was. One thing I like the character drama in the sense that, so, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, who is the prosecuting lawyer, he... He, want, he doesn't believe in what the protesters are doing. 
but he seems mm-hmm. to believe in the law and like the trial. And he's like, as long he's like, I can prosecute this because that's what our job is as lawyers. And he wants to move his career ahead. But he doesn't seem to be a full careerist in that way either. He isn't like, because you see in points of the movie, he's willing to have things changed against his own people if he thinks that it's really egregious morally. Yeah. So he has this almost idealization of the law. But what happens in the trial is that, and I wonder what your position on what the judge was actually doing there. Or like, what, what, like, because so the judge was extremely corrupt in a certain way that he would be against yeah, anything that like, would help out the Chicago 7 side, the defenders. Like, I'm not even saying that that's, like, necessarily historically inaccurate. That could be entirely true that that judge was just so vehemently and obviously biased. Mm-hmm. But it does feel like an incredibly biased view of what this situation was. Like, I'm not saying that oh, judge wasn't a racist and, did, and didn't think, like, all war opposers were hippies and fucking losers and should go to prison. Like maybe he absolutely did, but like the level of like ethically egregious things that he did that are like so beyond the pale against the law for a judge to do is crazy. Like Mm -hmm. it's insane to me that he would do them so aggressively in the public eye during a trial that is like, being watched and the courtroom is full and there are journalists there everywhere like it that kind of corruption is usually not so obvious and in your face it just seems weird that that would be happening in the way that it happened you know what i mean well and that that intrigues me because that's it there's so much of that that feels real to today's climate for example with the latest two Supreme Court nominees and they're the where this uh, I think it's the Senate or whatever they ask them questions and they go through and with Kavanaugh I, I think his last name was it, it was it was Kavanaugh. insane that like how how we couldn't answer or couldn't answer well so many questions and it just didn't matter right it's so political yeah, that... and that's one of the things that the movie's saying that in political trials like this the idea of the ideal of the law definitely takes a back seat. No, I don't I don't disagree with you about the fact that it was a political trial. I don't disagree with you that that exists and I don't disagree with you that there are like lifetime appointees to the Supreme Court that are like a like realistically either terrible people morally or just like dumb, like too dumb to be a sitting judge. But my point here is that doing something like dismissing two jurors or being complicit in like sending out fraudulent letters to essentially threaten these jurors and ensure that they couldn't be unbiased jurors and would have to be dismissed is like so in your face and so egregiously against the law that like it just seems surprising to me in a large metropolitan city with literally all publications' eyes on them, that that judge would do that right in your face. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Well, and yeah, in a certain way, it seems so unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying that that couldn't happen. That maybe it absolutely did. I don't know enough about this historical event. But so many of those types of things that were happening that were so aggressively like showing a corruption that was literally happening directly in front of hundreds of people and everybody's like chill this seems legal except for like 10 people who are on the defense team like that's 
I don't know. You know, like that just doesn't mm. like it it seems to push it beyond a level that like feels believable. If they had have had that corruption, but done something to make it seem a little more underhanded, make it a little more subtle, I don't think I would have this problem. But because it felt like it was so in your face that it felt like they were trying to appeal to like the lowest common denominator type of audience who like would need it spelled the fuck out for them why this situation was problematic. Mm. It just didn't feel like they were actually trying to do this story any justice and they were trying to make it as in your face like look at this political trial and this hyper legal war and look how horrible like American Republicanism is. And like, look, I, I have no love loss for American Republicanism, especially not in today's day and age and certainly not in the sixties during the height of the civil rights movement. But it does, it does seem like a little disingenuous to do it to that degree. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, I want to say some other stuff about it too. I Eddie Redmayne's character. Um, he has the most like ups and downs in the movie where like, you know, he's such, he's the most put together where he has this whole thing against the hippies being like, you guys are putting a bad, bad name to leftism and things. And we should do it like my way. But then of course you see that he wasn't like that at all. He was just as mess, if not more of a mess than the other characters. The Well, okay. So, Here's the thing. I don't necessarily 100% disagree with like his character's outlook on the situation. Because his whole point was in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, when we're trying to actively continue this type of systemic change, we don't want this movement to only be remembered as hippies getting high and handing out flowers. And ironically, that is absolutely how that generation is remembered. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, even when you look up photos of, like, the civil rights movement versus, like, the 1960s, the civil rights movement, you see all these intense, frightening, black and white photos that misrepresent the situation and make it look incredibly violent. But when you Google, like, the 1960s or protests against Vietnam, all you see are these flower children in color at Woodstock getting high, handing out flowers, dancing to, like, hippie music and shit. So it is like, it has been by media and historically disingenuously represented because of the aesthetic that that movement created. And I'm not saying like, there's anything necessarily wrong with the hippie and flower movement, but it does create this sort of rose colored glasses, idealized view of what the 60s really were. And the 60s were like rife with panic and fear and intensity and change. And it is kind of misrepresented historically and in schools. So like his point mm -hmm. of view isn't incorrect. I just think the way he went about it was like, I don't know, a little too privileged white boy kind of well, thing. And hypocritical in that of, and that's one of the twists of the movie, but in that what he actually ends up doing is, you know, being a hot mess. <laughs> so, uh, and so, okay, I so I actually like that aspect of his character. When you have that twist, he has a hot mess moment, um, moment, or like doing things. Um, and I actually think that was really a cool look at his character. And then he has the not, he's the only person who stands up for the judge when they all had agreed like implicitly to mm, see that was gross him. to me. 
Well, and then so so then you're like frustrated with his character, and I actually liked that space for his character, but I actually don't like how his character ends. Of course, it's a cool moment. And it's actually I cried at the end of the movie because I thought it was a really good moment and felt very powerful. But I think as a character, like what you're saying with the Oscar baiting, like it felt like why does he get so met? Like his character arc is like there's so much to it compared to a lot of the other characters. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, this is so liked... over the top for the like privileged white boy character. Like, I, I know he, it yeah. had very, he had very white savior complex. And like, we really don't know anything about the one black Panther character. Yeah. Like really, like there are some other like tertiary characters and like, yes, in that trial, he does get dismissed. His trial gets separated, whatever, which is fine. But like, there's so, so many egregious things that specifically happen to him, and he spends 90% of what he's in the movie for in a prison cell and off screen. And you're just like, this is kind of fucked up. Like, it's mm-hmm. a little weird that we're not doing anything with this character, and then we're just gonna, like, abuse him horribly on screen and then send him away. Like, it felt like his character was there for, like, the racism shock value and then he got booted for a bunch of white saviors and it's like what i don't really understand what the message was that you were trying to convey Mm. like i'm not saying keep him around for the entire movie if like the actual situation only really occurred around those seven characters and they happen to be white like that is what it is it's fine you can dismiss his him from the case when he's historically supposed to be dismissed from the case but to show like the most surface level aspects of his character and then just have him not be there anymore is a little fucked up when you're gonna have him like literally bound and gagged in the middle of a courtroom after being beaten in a back room it's a little fucked up to just like immediately dismiss him and nobody ever talks about or thinks about how insane that was and you learn absolutely nothing about his character except presumably he has like a wife back home and that's it. Um, I I liked the I, I I liked the movie a lot, but I agree with you on like it's so there's so many aspects of it that leave a weird taste. Um, mm-hmm. looking back on it, even though I thought it was really cool, depending on how historically accurate it was, like it is it was really it's so relevant to today's stuff and just like where the u.s is at and see oh this is kind of why it feels like netflix oscar baiting to me you know like it comes out not because it's relevant but because it's like the movie itself has sort of like a semi disingenuous kind of heavy bias feel to it like it feels very much like a movie made for liberals which whatever it is what Mm -hmm. it is but like it is heavily biased you spend a lot of time with eddie redmayne whose character is kind of like boring and very white savory you have like these very specific tokenized characters layered throughout the movie and it's so like insanely perfectly on time politically relevant that it's just like all of this makes it come together and culminize in a way that just feels like Netflix is like, look how relevant we are. Look how perfect we are. Look how, like, socially experienced we are. Like, pay attention to us. And it feels a little gross to me. Hmm. Certainly they do like these political stuff, too, because we also had the um, Central Park Five. They did mm-hmm. a recent yeah. one, too. So they, t- they definitely like this kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I think I want to move on. Do you have more you want to... Talk about you, well, technically, this was mine, so you can go 
You can go ahead. Okay. So I, one I definitely want to talk about is Utopia, which I said I would watch after. Um, So I watched the 2013 version of Utopia because the new one on Amazon Prime came out, which I haven't actually seen. So the new one on Amazon Prime came out and I found out that the premise is about conspiracy theories being true. Mm -hmm. And in particular about a a flu that was faked by like a sort of global network of, you know, not elites, but, you know, a secretive global network. And so I was like, oh, okay. And then it's about a graphic novel that people are finding information through, finding out information about the secret thing through. And I'm like, uh, this is so badly timed, like, with with K A. Uh, oh my god. QAnon? QAnon? Is that a QAnon? Yes. yes. Okay. Is QAnon like, is the weird conspiracy cult. Yes. So with QAnon and people actually, like many, many people actually believing in some degree or another that COVID is... Um, a conspiracy. It was so disturbing to me that this show was made right now. Uh, but I listened to reviews about, like, because I investigated this a bit and what people thought of the, ne- the Amazon Prime one, and everyone's just like, the 2013 one is actually an incredibly good show. And for some reason, some sort of switch flipped in my head, and I love controversy. So I was like, well, now I gotta watch. Yeah. The you Utopia. are very much the contrarian of our duo. Um, so I did, and it was super good. In terms of like, pleasure like what i really liked about it is that it is one of those things where it's a group of people who all like find each other but didn't know each other before and they're dealing with a world in which anyone could be an enemy right that's like this that's sort of the real plot movement device so the idea is like they want to bring this information out there or like like get like fix this problem but the problem is anyone they talk to has a chance of being part of this network that's called the network that is doing all this Mm -hmm. bad stuff so that's their big problem but what i think is really cool is the first season focuses on them so there's two seasons they're both short they're only like six episodes each so together they're like one normal season the first season focuses on the group getting together finding out about this this flu that's fake and through this graphic novel and being obsessed with how they can hide their identities online and and whatnot and be um, hidden such that they're able to fight against this network or learn more information about it. So they break into a bunch of places, learn stuff, and are trying to figure out what this network actually is and what they're up to. Obviously, I can't say much more than that because it gets into spoiler territory real quickly because it's all about plot twists in the show, which I love. Mm. But the second season, you now know a bit more about the network. And the second season is so, I loved it because it really investigates why they're doing what they're doing and like what their ideas were. And it's so, the I love when it's like ideological battle. You really start to see reasons for both sides. Why someone, why this network is doing what they're doing has sort of reasons for it, which in the end, they're not, they, they're not good. But it's cool how they try to justify them. And, like, if you did believe what they believed, would you do what they do? Is And so the question is, like, so they do a lot, a lot of really awful things. But if you believe what they're doing, then you believe that they're doing a great, great, like, a super ridiculously good for the for the world. Because I don't want to spoil what they're actually doing. But essentially, they're, they're trying to save millions of people's lives um, by doing things which involve killing people, lying framing people for all sorts of bullshit, blackmailing like crazy. 
it's yeah it's all sorts of stuff but then the reason network has people is because it's not just because they blackmail people that is how they control a lot of people but the people at the top are there because they believe in the project and so it's i like that they gave them a sympathetic view so that you really feel this ideological battle between the two sides Mm. now when it comes to how it stacks up to conspiracy theorists today and what they believe in and what they think. I think that's the funny thing about the show. I don't think it's that relevant to Mm. that kind of thing because the show kind of shows how absurd it is. Or or those people who anything you tell them about real evidence in the, in the real world about stuff that contradicts their view that there's some, you know, hidden global elite or whatever it is, or communist group that's controlling everything or whatever it is. Right. Nothing you could give them as evidence would ever contradict what they're believing. So there's almost a catharsis in watching this in that once you start discovering who's in the network, it's like they really do unveil the the, the exact people who are in it. And you're like, if this is actually how it works, like these are actual people in actual positions of power of different sorts who are elites and whatnot. It's like, it it doesn't feel that frightening anymore. It's just the same as like, a normal government doing bad stuff or whatever. And so you you get the sense in which the way in which these people believe in these conspiracy theories doesn't really make much sense because they believe that these people have an unbelievable amount of control. But even in this show, mm-hmm. what it shows is like, they still have to be cautious. Like they still have to do stuff. They can only influence a little bit of the world, right? You can't just do stuff like insane yeah. and, and control well, everything. That's the crazy thing to me about conspiracy theories in general, because with something like COVID is a hoax, you basically have to assume that thousands, thousands of people across hundreds of countries are working together simultaneously and all managing to keep this a fucking secret to the point where there's literally only one dude leaking information on something like fucking 8chan. Like... And it's not like that never happens. I mean, we've seen shit like that with Snowden, mm-hmm. right? Where he leaked all the information about the NSA. But, like, this wasn't a hidden dude who was still somehow working and manipulating in the government. He lost his livelihood. He lost basically everything that made him into a human being and had to go on the fucking run. You saw his face. He came out actively to give you this information. And then almost immediately, no one gave a shit. Mm -hmm. So, like, what exactly makes you think that somebody could leak this information on a non-dark web website and still somehow remain entirely anonymous to the point where they can keep working in the government? And the only solution that these people can come up with is that he works directly for the president and the president watches this information, wants this information leaked. But A, I don't think you understand how much and how little the president has power over And something like national security in regards to somebody leaking information like this, like, there's no way they wouldn't be hunting this person down, regardless of what the president said. And it doesn't take into account the hundreds of other fucking countries that would need to be involved Mm -hmm. who don't give a shit if the president wants this information leaked or not, because they're also involved and presumably do not want this information leaked. So, like, how do you reconcile that? Yeah. Here's a good example of, like, one that I heard recently. 
where someone said, oh, I read an article where uh, a, a doctor in the UK was talking about how they had a really bad, just before COVID, they had a really bad flu season in the UK. And so because everyone um, was already, or maybe it was the opposite, maybe it was like, a, no, it was a very weak uh, flu season. So very little people were, it, it was near them, right? So in a certain way, he said they were, we were prepped. The UK was prepped to have a really devastating one if you get a super flu in there because people's immune systems weren't ready for it or something like this. So it's like, so someone was saying it's like, so that's, that's why COVID like might be a hoax or whatever. And it's like, what? I, there's so many levels of that. I don't understand. But in particular, what I want to focus on is just like, why would some, like, if something's, if the season was a certain way in the UK, why would that have any effect on the rest of the world statistics and that's what it gets it's like it's this finding this very specific weird evidence to connect to your point now i will say some stuff that i have heard from the other side or whatever is like that china for example like and i've heard documentaries talk about this china didn't alert to the fact that they had this virus and how bad it was until they sort of had to to the rest of the world and it's like that kind of thing is true but then they say so china set this all up as a biological weapon. It's like, no, they're just trying to save face from the fact that yeah. they, were, they were fucking it up and they don't care about what happens to other countries in, insofar as th- it doesn't break trade agreements. And even then, like, China started, like, publishing news about this and I believe working with the WHO as early as November. Mm. COVID didn't start hitting other countries until, like, February, January. So, like, yeah, it's only a couple of months buffer, but at that point, like, they were already starting to lock down Wuhan in November. It didn't start hitting, like, North America heavily until March, and it didn't start appearing in places like Italy and Mm. the UK until, like, January, February. So, like, they were already, like, preemptively working with the WHO and were reporting on it internationally as early as November. So that argument doesn't even necessarily work because you can have a bad flu season when something like COVID requires like a 14 day incubation period and not realize just quite how bad it is until you're two months into this super flu pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then you get to the point where you're like, it's November. The entire population of this one city is sick. Thousands of people are dying and it's starting to appear in other countries, we need to, like, lock down this city, we need to start figuring out a test, we need to work with the WHO, we need to start alerting other countries. So, like, no. Did they react as quickly as they could have? Probably not. Were they expecting a pandemic? Probably not. Did they report on it internationally pretty much as soon as they realized the level of severity of this disease? It seems like it. Um, all right, let's switch over to maybe, hopefully you have something lighter to, uh, move uh, us into. Yeah, I mean, it's all horror stuff, but, like, That's I would say it's lighter. That's fluffy. Um, <laughs> unless you want to hear about City on the Hill, which is about corrupt, like, police officers and politicians, so it's probably not any better. <laughs> um, so I, I did a rewatch. I've done a few okay. horror rewatches. Um, so Cabin in the Woods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I rewatched Cabin in the Woods, which, you know, in light of the Joss Whedon controversy is not great, but I just, I fucking love that movie so much. And I hate how much I just love everything Joss Whedon 
has, you know, produced other, or directed or created or whatever, other than, like, the Justice League shit. Like, that movie, that movie really sucked. Mm-hmm. But, like, his original content that he's created has been some of my favorite content over the years. So yeah. I just, like, I don't know. I just really love it. And Cabin in the Woods, Cabin in the Woods is, to me, is such a great movie. So first of all, like, I had been waiting when that movie came out. That movie came out in, like, the middle of the 2010s, like, probably, yeah. like, 2013 or 2014 or something like that. And, like, that movie was, like, 10 years in the making. So I remember hearing about Cabin in the Woods, like, around the time fucking, like, Dollhouse was still on the air, which was another Joss Whedon television show with Eliza Dushku, if you've never seen it. Um, and Tom O'Pennycat, an excellent Canadian Indigenous actor. Yeah, I, n- I never watched Dollhouse, but I definitely know about it. Oh, it's so fucking good. I love Dollhouse. Um, so I heard about Cabin in the Woods, like, around that time, and it was supposed to be a horror movie you know, written and directed by Joss Whedon. Mm -hmm. So I was like on fucking board and it took 10 years for it to get made. So it finally came out. It was theatrically released. I saw it in theaters. I recently did a rewatch of it. And this movie is like, it's so great to me because it is in a lot of ways more a comedy than a true horror film. Yep. It's very like self-effacing. It's very meta, like very breaking down all of the tropes of, horror films but for me it's a fan love letter type movie more than anything else Mm -hmm. um but i i don't necessarily disagree for that reason i just didn't (laughs) feel like it was successful on any other level so i mean but that's me i know my my brother loves it you love it like it's definitely a loved movie and i'm not going to take that away from people i think a lot of the reason why it's 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 so loved and maybe i'm wrong but at least from my perspective is because it's very much like you said, a fan love letter to horror films and and sort of like mocking and and self-effacing, joking about all of these common tropes in horror films. But it is also sort of Joss Whedon's own love letter to some of his favorite content. Like you can Mm. see a lot of the inspiration for this movie came from Buffy and Angel specifically, but also a little bit Dollhouse. And what I mean is like, because I recently did a Buffy rewatch, in Buffy, specifically in... um, season four when Buffy and gang go to college you learn about this like secret government agency who's hunting down all of these like demons and vampires and performing experiments on them and keeping them in these little boxes and it just rings very true to the same kind of thing you see in Cabin in the Woods when you get to the end and you realize all the monsters are in boxes it's the secret government agency they're using the monsters to stave off an apocalypse again in both Buffy and Angel it's the constant like trying to stop the apocalypse thing when you see the end of Buffy there's like hundreds of slayers everywhere when you see the end of Buffy, there's hundreds of slayers everywhere. The Hellmouth in Sunnydale is closed, but there's still hundreds of Hellmouths all over the world. The government agency still exists. They're still hunting monsters. You see that in season, I think, seven or season six of Buffy. The like in Angel, the very end of the series is the apocalypse and a Hellmouth in LA bursting open and all these demons coming out. So it feels like Cabin in the Woods is sort of like The apocalypse happens in Angel. The Slayers try to deal with it. At least some, if not all, die off. The government agency still exists. They harness the power of these demons and monsters, and they use them to sacrifice people to keep the Hellmouths at bay. And that's what it feels like. Yeah. 
That's what it feels like Cabin in the Woods is. It's kind of the next level to what happened after Buffy and Angel ended and how like the world is sating all of these hellmouths when they don't have all of the slayers to deal with it. And I love that concept. Um, and like just, and it's just because I recently rewatched Buffy that I'm feeling like this because I did a mm-hmm. full rewatch of the entire series and then I watched Cabin in the Woods. Um, but beyond that, like there are so many things about the characters that I love. There are so many jokes in the movie that I think work really, really well for that sort of self-effacing, very meta reason. And I love that your your voice of reason throughout the movie is the like stoner idiot kind of guy who typically would die off very early in a horror film um, and ends up taking on the sort of like intellectual role that you have for a nerdy character like somebody like Randy in the first and second screen movies. So I think that's kind of like spinning that sort of a trope on its head a little bit, which Mm -hmm. I greatly enjoy. Um, And I love that they use like the final girl concept of virginity and kind of toy with that with the we work with what we've got, you're less slutty than your friend. So you're as good as we can do. Like I, I just conceptually, I think that's really funny and interesting. And I also forgot how you get both a mix of like your Joss Whedon regulars that you love, right? You've got like Fran Kranz, you've got Amy Acker, those like constant sort of Joss Whedon actors that you see in a lot of his content. But then you also get these like weirdly big name actors in this fucking like stupid horror comedy like Chris Hemsworth and Jesse yeah. Williams from Grey's Anatomy and Sigourney fucking Weaver. And you're like, it's just such a weird mix of characters that you're like, what the fuck is going on with this movie? Yeah. Do you think in a way it, you know, cause you, you think about after let's say 2012 or whatever, horror movies definitely have like a lot of the tropes that they're showing off in Cabin in the Woods aren't reappearing anymore in horror movies. True. It feels as I even, mean, but even ish. like the idea of the slasher film and like that idea is, you know, the one only I can only think of stuff like um, Unfriended or um, there's a, like similar ones where it's like it's taken, but like there is an idea of like, uh, well, usually it's a supernatural thing nowadays, but like something killing mm-hmm. each character off. Even there, the tropes seem to be mixed up or changed in a different way. Obviously, there's the um, in that case the um, the gimmick of it all being on social media and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I, I wonder if a way, in a way, Cameron Woods like sort of was a nice like closure to like showing off, like isn't, wasn't a lot of this stuff. Like it was really fun, but it was also like, let's not do the virgin thing anymore. Like it's kind of dumb. Yeah. Let's not do the, like, it was kind of like a conclusion. Yeah. To let's a lot not of do stuff. the virgin thing. Let's not do the, like, let's all split up thing. All of those types of things. Yeah, for sure. No, I don't I don't disagree with you. I do think you still kind of see that. A lot of less fun, corny horror movies to to watch nowadays. Like they they exist, but I think they know. exist, but I don't I feel like So like a lot of those fun, corny horror movies, in my opinion, are coming from Bloomhouse. Basically like the fun house mirrors of horror film production companies. Mm-hmm. And I Look, don't get me wrong. I There are a lot of Blumhouse movies that I have greatly enjoyed. Blumhouse takes itself so fucking seriously these days 
that like even their fun horror movies get kind of exhausting because they take themselves so seriously. Mm. It's like they're trying like we're really going to do something here. People are going to love this shit. And you're just like, it's just another dumb movie. Like I really I recently watched that movie Countdown, which I think might be a Blumhouse movie, but I'm not sure. It feels like one where it's just like I'm not I'm not going to talk about this long, but it's just like you get this app on your phone and the app on your phone tells you when you're going to die. And then they're trying to like run out the clock and break the curse. Mm. And you still have this like, you know, final girl character. And like, she's like the super protective older sister. Because of course, like in these days, like that trope always, it's it's not about virginity anymore. It's always about like family values, protecting like a loved one, a younger sibling or a child or something, but it's still the same basic trope. You've still got the like boyfriendy type character and there's sort of like a vague, like will they, won't they chastity breaking kind of scene between them. You've still got the like sort of asshole character that you're best friends with, but that movie countdown, like it's not even necessarily a terrible movie. Like it's kind of fun, but it's literally just a rehash of the movie One Missed Call from when, that came out when we were in high school, which is just a rehash of The Ring. Mm. So, like, it's just a yeah. new spin on basically a movie that has existed since, I think, like, 1997 when the Japanese version came out. And then 2001 when the Naomi Watts version came out. And then in 2007 or 8, you had the One Missed Call version. And now you have Countdown, which is the same movie. Um, so it's like, you're still getting those tropes. They're just trying to present them in a way that doesn't rehash past movies too much that you recognize what it is, but it is inherently the same kind of tropes. They've just put a new spin on them, which is sort of frustrating. I don't know. Like I love horror and I love experimental stuff that they do in horror, but you, I don't know. It can get a little exhausting. I wonder, I wonder what you'd respond to this though. So it's like, you know, one of my roommates, loves to rewatch lots and lots of horror. As I was saying, we just watched Jason uh, Takes Manhattan or whatever recently, which was bad. Look, so I'm just going to say it's bad. The end. So bad. Um, no, it's fine. It's so bad. I don't think anyone has any illusions. So, so, you know, there's all these franchises in horror, right? And I think one of the only ones that gives that same flavor recently of this, like, absurdly overdone franchise, and but just that, like, you can go back and just watch them for fun sort of thing is the Saw movies. Oh, Which... Barf. They do get worse as they go along, but that's true of like you know all like Freddy, um, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, the Friday the Thirteenth, and like a whole bunch of these different uh, Halloween these 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 franchises where people just go back to them over and over again for the fun of like reengaging with your your favorite franchises, Scream, to like as well and whatnot. Okay, um, the first two Scream movies are excellent. The third mm-hmm. one is still pretty good. And the fourth one's not as bad as I remember, but well, I, I hate yeah, Emma I, I'm Roberts. Not, I'm not necessarily saying any of these. I'm not, like, judging any of them as being, like, definitely the stream of, like, best to worst or anything like that. I just mean, like, that sense of a franchise you can just go back to and have fun with and, like, feel the, like, sort of tropiness, sort of you're actually still in it feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just feel like horror movies... I don't know, they're they're in a different, maybe it's just getting older, but they're just in a different dimension to me where I, I feel like even like, so for example, one I loved when I was a kid was uh, The Children Under the Stairs. And... It's not even scary. It's, it's it's yeah, it's a weird, it's I think that's more of a kid's freaky one, because, um, you know, it's about kids in it. Is that Wes Craven? But maybe. I think that's I about know. Wes Craven. But I loved it, and I have this sense of like, 
spookiness are about or oh i loved the child's play movies too and you know they're a bit silly but they're also just fun spooky and kill scenes and so there's still movies with lots of cool kills lots of the same ideas Mm -hmm. but i just feel like it's much further far between where i feel engaged with those franchises as as franchises as that kind of charm that corny feeling of like you both are like this is kind of silly but i'm also really into this I don't know. I think I think every generation has their has their sort of horror movie franchises, right? I mean, like the seventies, eighties, and nineties were obviously dominated by slasher flicks. You've got Friday the Thirteenth, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, even Child's Play, obviously, and all of those were dominated by these really outrageous kills and Hellraiser. this like really specific. Yeah, oh, fuck Hellraiser. Hellraiser appealed to a very different type of audience in horror. But you, you've got these really outrageous kills. You've got this like very specific antagonist that follows you through every single movie, that kind of thing. But like you move into like the 2000s, you still have that because you have your final destination. You have um, okay. the Saw movies. You've got uh, the Hostel movies. It just moved mm-hmm. more into this like sort of you have a less specific antagonist that your protagonists are fighting off. Mm -hmm. It became a little bit more atmospheric and it was very predicated on this, like almost torture porn level gore. Yeah. And that's what was dominated the two thousands in horror. And now we're moving into this more like atmospheric esoteric kind of realm with mainstream horror but before this, our really big thing was paranormal stuff. And right. all of our franchises were dominated by the paranormal. It was all insidious, sinister, the conjuring movies, you know, you had your like the nun, you had Ouija, like all of those kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. And now we're in this sort of like weird experimental phase with horror. Um, that kind of harkens back in my mind to like the seventies, especially going into like you know, non-mainstream horror when you're looking at, like, European horror and guillas and stuff. What we're doing now, mm-hmm. that sort of experimental phase, feels like it's coming full circle and we're going to see a new advent of what we saw in, like, the 80s. I just want to check the time here. Okay, we should uh, move into the movie soon. So I'll just say some quickfire stuff. Okay. I, I watched the end of the last season of Schitt's Creek, Loved it. Rewatching the whole thing. Honestly, that's a forever show for me. Like, it just truly touched my heart. And I'm sure it'll come up in random parts of the podcast later on. So I'm not going to talk too much about it. But loved it. Deserved the Emmys. So glad for the show. Canadian masterpiece. Truly. And then I watched, and this is talked about like crazy, the second season of The Boys. Which I'm not sure if you kept up with it at all. Also watched it. Yeah, I yeah. watched it. Um, really fun, really good. I didn't like it as much as the first season, but I, my favorite thing, and I think everyone agrees with this, was the introduction of Stormfront. And just, she has an amazing character arc. It's really hard to talk about her without spoilers, so I'm just gonna say that she's just awesome. Has like that, she knows how to manipulate media, and it feels so fresh and like modern in her manipulations. Mm-hmm. And, and just so cool. Such a cool character. So uh, I enjoyed it, but had a bunch of problems with it. And it's I'm so glad for Amazon Prime to be getting shows that, like, are now, like, people are showing on the race. Like, it's competing up there with the with Netflix, with all the other streaming services for, like, top, top 
most stream shows, which they had apparently never had before. This is their first show to like multiple weeks in the top slot or in a top slot. I I have my problems when it comes to Netflix because Netflix doesn't actually release their streaming numbers like in any realistic sense. Like they don't mm-hmm. actually release like Nielsen type rating numbers like Prime does, like any other streaming service does. They just say like, this is how popular it was based on our algorithms and you're supposed to take their word for it. So it's like, you can say Netflix's shows are always in the top streaming spot, but you can never actually know how, like... Right. It's just not How objective. accurate those numbers are. Yeah, because they're not reporting transparently, which is problematic. And, and ultimately, I just think Amazon Prime for years now has produced higher quality content overall than Netflix um, on average. Netflix has had some great shows and movies, but like ultimately Amazon Prime's movies and shows feel like they put in a significantly more care to the production value, to the actors, to the writing. Like overall, the shows just tend to be a lot better and they also have longer runs. Whereas Netflix, the minute somebody doesn't pay attention to the show, they don't give it another chance. They just cancel it flat out after one season. Yeah. The other problem with Netflix's numbers is that anything that goes beyond five minutes, they consider a watch. They consider it a stream of the episode. So if you've watched more than five minutes, you count toward their algorithm as somebody who has watched their content and therefore it boosts their numbers. Mm. So that creates kind of like a like an issue with like their streaming numbers and how good how good their shows do because they'll report that a show is doing amazingly good like teenage bounty hunters did apparently amazing numbers for netflix and they canceled it after one season and it's like you wouldn't do that if it was such a high performing show you mm. know what i mean i did hear about and i don't know if you've heard this too but that one of the reasons even pretty high performing shows um get canceled on netflix is because their main strategy is about getting new subscribers and resurrecting subscribers that have canceled. And so they love to get shows that uh, fill fill a slot in their sort of thing. So for example, one that, I, that I've heard talked about is The Crown. For a lot of people who love Netflix or love most of Netflix stuff, The Crown is not a show they watch. It's actually one of the shows that like most people who watch a lot of stuff on Netflix don't watch The Crown. But The Crown Netflix loves because it gets women over 40 onto the service and they love Mm -hmm. it which is a demographic that they are historically very bad at getting engaged in their platform and so they love shit like that that gets new subscribers in, and so that's another metric in which that's how they're deciding and if it's not doing that then they don't care that it's super popular because it's just keeping people who are already going to pay for the platform the next month anyways and i think that is from a consumer point standpoint super bullshit because it means like as as loyal members you're not cared about at all what they're optimizing for is only to make sure that you have something that'll keep you there the next month and that's it yeah um and the other big problem that like a lot of streaming services have historically had with their content this is going to be a really boring segment but the other (laughs) problem that a lot of streaming services have had and you've seen prime come up with a solve for this problem essentially the issue is dollars spent specifically on marketing so when you market a brand new show You have to spend a lot of money to try and get people engaged both on the platform and people who are not currently using your platform to try and get them to subscribe to watch this exclusive piece of content. But streaming services historically have dropped entire seasons all at once 
because people love to binge content. So you'll get a shitload of subscribers who will binge that content, but then will immediately cancel when they finish the show. And they may or may not resubscribe Uh. a year later. The other issue is that when you drop a show, it's 10 episodes, you drop the whole thing, and somebody, the majority of people will watch that in one weekend or one week. Then when the next season comes out a full year later, you have to spend literally just as much money on marketing as you did when you were marketing a brand new show just to market the second season to try and get people engaged in watching that content again because it's been so long that they've completely forgot about what happened in the previous season. So you're both immediately spending a shitload of money off the hop to try and get people engaged in this new show, but you again have to spend that exact same amount of money, if not more, just to remind people about this content to get them to either resubscribe, continue subscribing, or just to watch it in the first place if they're a loyal subscriber. So what Prime has done as part of their solution is to drop their most popular shows weekly, like Mm -hmm. you would on a cable network, rather than as a full season. Which is what they did with the boys. Yeah. Yeah, they did that with the boys. They've done that with other content. And you're seeing Netflix do the same thing. And the sole reason is because it does save you money. So if you have 10 episodes, it takes you 10 weeks to drop this. And then now you've only got, you know, maybe 30 weeks before your next season comes out instead of, you know, 40 or 50 weeks. So you can actually save a significant amount of money on your marketing spend by slow dripping marketing content to remind people another season is coming out, which you're seeing Prime already do with the boys. And they're doing it in a way that's incredibly cost effective. So basically, they're having some of their stars in plain clothes, not in studio, not in costume, not in makeup, film these little teaser things and post them on social media to keep people engaged in what's going to come 40 or 30 weeks from now. So you're seeing Jensen Ackles and and the guy who plays Homelander film these little like 30 second video spots basically having a conversation in character but not in costume and they're in their own homes and then post them on social media to get people engaged it's incredibly cost effective marketing that easily goes viral and gets people interested especially when you have an exciting new character that you know is going to be coming in who's played by a highly popular actor on social media like Jensen Ackles who's from Supernatural who Mm -hmm. already has shit loads of clout and a huge fan base do you like the the weekly model or do you prefer the full season drops model? I mean, it really depends on the show. If it's a show that I genuinely enjoy, the weekly model, honestly, I think is probably better. Mm-hmm. Just because, especially for something like The Boys, that's incredibly plot driven, you know, that has a lot yeah. of interesting plot points. When you binge it all in one go you kind of don't have the time to appreciate what's going on and have sort of like an on the edge of your seat excitement about the mini cliffhangers in the community, right? Like whether that's your friends or whether that's online to really connect with people on it is another form of free marketing. Yeah. Like it is smarter to do the episodic model for these grand scale shows because you cannot build that sense of community when you drop it as a full season. And without that sense of community, you don't have that free marketing on Reddit forums, on Facebook groups, on like TikTok where people post their favorite clips, right? Like you you lose out on all of this because people stop giving a shit unless you have like 
a truly like weird character that like a bunch of millennials or Gen Zers just really gravitate towards like Klaus from Umbrella Academy. And even then, that's not a guarantee that people will actually watch her shit. It just guarantees that they'll simp over fucking like Robert Sheehan for two years. Uh, God, I I actually hate the term simp. But I really struggle with every new new term, but I, I, I come around after a month or two usually. But like that one, the negative connotations of it really anger me. It's like cuck. I just feel like people should not use cuck. I mean, I wouldn't say it's as bad as cuck, um, but I would say, like, simping is problematic, like, as a term. I like himbo, though. Himbo's fun. I love himbo. Himbo's fun. But, like, I would say simp... simp himbo's been around forever, though. But I would say, like, Has simping it? is oh. problematic as a term. Yeah. But it's it's no more problematic than, like, fangirling, which was equally True. as disparaged. And that was, like, the term that we used when we were in, like, fucking high school in the Tumblr generation. You know what you I mean? Like, right. there's always yeah. been a term for, like, that over-the-top, you know, I'll do anything for you, I bow down to you because I love you so much kind of person, you know? Like, that's just always existed. And same with, like, Stan. Like, that's not really anything See, new. yeah, standing is just simping for me, but with less of a bad connotation. But fangirling, I think, is a good equivalent because I think it's pretty clear. It's, it's unless used ironically, like, it's a pretty bad connotation, usually used term. Yeah. But I think, like, the fact that people use it to describe themselves, like, it had a half-life of people using it to basically mock men for, like, you know, respecting women. Mm. Um, and that's basically the the negative connotation of, of simping was, like, oh, you actually respect, like, people with vaginas? You're such a bitch. Like, you're such a little simp. And it's, like, fine, whatever. But that half-life was so fucking short, and now people use it in such a self-effacing way where it's like, right. I'm just, like, such a, like, I'm such a fan of this actor. I'm such a, like, bitch for this character, like, that kind of shit. And it's like, when you use it directed towards yourself, I feel like it takes the power away from that negative connotation. Yeah. I think I, at least the media I'm seeing, is still a little bit towards that first phase. So, but I think I, I would like it more if I saw... If once once it's more evolved in my like from what I've seen, yeah, I mean, I feel like media is always really far behind social media. You know what I mean? Like mm. it's 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 already evolved to that point on on TikTok. Like it's very much like used in this self-effacing way where people refer to themselves as simp's and like have kind of just been like ironically calling themselves that in the same way the fangirl did. You know, yeah. like it shifted that way. Whereas Stan, like if you understand the origins of it, and Stan is literally like a stalker level fan because it's taken from that fucking Eminem song Stan where he's a literal stalker mm. like Stan is technically more problematic in historical usage huh interesting I, I had no idea about that history I always just thought of it as like super fan yeah no it's it's literally like the Eminem song Stan about the guy who stalked him Quiet. and like murdered his girlfriend and tried to kill Eminem because Eminem didn't answer his fan mail Okay. Like, that's what that's taken from. That song's rad, though. It's so good. <laughs> um, Devin Sawa plays the guy Stan in the music video. Fun fact. We gotta get to this movie. We're, uh, we're deep. All right, we're fine. deep in it. I thought you wanted to make it conversational, but whatever. Well, I also know you gotta sleep, so. Oh, shit, it's 9.30? Oh, man, I just added myself as an old lady. Um... Look, guys, we film these on a Wednesday and I have a regular nine to five, okay? <laughs> I'm an adult. All right, I'm going to put away my media book so I'm not tempted to talk about the other shit that I watched. 
Okay, so uh, we just watched The Discovery on Netflix, which... Yeah. Um, how would you describe what it's about? Or do you want me to go? Uh, it is about... So this guy, this scientist, discovers that there is some type of afterlife that exists... And it, I don't know how spoiler A can be. You're well, probably at better at describing here, this. Let, yeah, let's just stick with the beginning, which is, yeah. So a scientist discovers that it seems as though something leaves the body. They describe it as brainwaves, um, leaves the body after death, and definitely goes to another dimension, as they say. They don't know what is in that other dimension or another plane. what it is. But they're like, it definitely goes somewhere, and that is said to be proven at the beginning of the movie. And then the problem that's arisen is that tons and tons of people are now committing suicide because of it. Um, mm-hmm. And so throughout the movie, you see these these suicide clocks everywhere about saying, like, please, like, care for your life. And then it shows how many people have committed suicide, which by about the 10-minute mark is 4 million uh, worldwide. So it's about a guy and his father, his father being the one who discovered this, and was fathered is, is it Roger? Robert Redford. Robert, oh Robert God. Redford. God, you suck. I'm really bad with actor names. names. I've never watched movies with him. I did know the name though, or at least Robert not. Redford was like really big in like you know like the sixties and shit. Yeah. So he he plays the father, and then Jason Segal plays the son, and Siegel. Siegel. Okay. Yeah. So he plays the son, and uh, who's also a neurological scientist, and has actually, you see in the movie that he um, agreed with his father's findings, but they, they've they had a falling out. And so that's sort of where you start the movie, where he's sort of frustrated by the worldwide situation with all these suicides and whatnot. But I'm, I'm not sure, actually, even though I've seen the movie twice, I don't actually know why he ends up going back to... Or finding his father's lab. Was he invited? Or like, how did that happen? It's literally never explained because you're... Like, I'm going to spoil it. Mm-hmm. But it's never explained because it's a fucking loop. So he has no memory of why he went there. Because he always starts on the ferry. Oh, interesting. So there is no explanation for why he went. Because it's not happening. It's an interesting explanation. I don't. I don't know if that's what the movie is going for but perhaps because yeah I, I can't think of the explanation of why he's going there but anyways there he's going isn't one the movie lot. starts with him on the damn ferry well it starts with the interview but yeah it starts with the interview but when you meet jason siegel's character it starts with him on the ferry mm-hmm. there is no like there's nothing that precipitates that you don't see him at any other point you don't see him driving to the ferry you don't see like how he got there why he went there if there was a phone call he's just on the ferry turning off the interview that's on the news. Mm-hmm. And so on the ferry, he meets this woman named Isla, who is going for, to the island for unknown reasons as well. <laughs> Who's Isla played by? Don't know. Rooney Mara. Okay. The actress best known to playing Lisbeth Salander in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. She was also Mark Zuckerberg's like girlfriend character in The Social Network by Aaron Sorkin. It's actually... Okay. Aaron Sorkin, he directed the trial of the Chicago 7. Yes, he did. And and it feels exactly like something he would make. Oh, really? Because I'm like, I would have not connected 
I was going to say the opposite. I'm like, I would have not connected those two at all. I mean, the social network has very much that, like, Oscar Beatty, weirdly white savory kind of shit as the trial of the Chicago That's 7. That's kind of true, yeah. Um, but I did see a Twitter, a Twitter thing after the trial. Uh, <laughs> a tweeter. Uh, uh, yeah, a tweet <laughs> of someone talking about that. Aaron Sorkin has never made something worth attention. I didn't recognize the name. So I was like, well, what did he make? And I'm like, he has a list of movies that lots of people like. So I was like, okay, this person is obviously just doesn't like his movies. But I did I did think it was... Because all of his movies are just like, yay, white men. Like, that's... Even, even The Social Network, which is about Mark Zuckerberg, who, in the real world, is like a rat bastard borderline supervillain. It still feels very much like, yeah... White men. <laughs> like, that's all Aaron Sorkin fucking movies are. It's like, woo! White men are awesome. Look at the cool shit they do. It's like, fuck off. Um, Discovery. <laughs> so they... Yeah, right. They, the movie uh, we're supposed to be talking about. Um, Rooney Mara's character goes to, uh, goes to the island with them, and they discover that there has been some progress made with the with the machine. Uh, and part of that progress is that his father seems to have started essentially a cult around um, this thing yeah. of people who have been very affected by it and are really interested in furthering the research about the afterlife. So that I think that's enough for now. So what did you think about it? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I mean, I understand that it is it, conceptually it's interesting there were a lot of weird plot holes that annoyed me, yeah. as you heard while we were talking about yeah. this movie. I kept, I, I just I kept bitching. The, the plot holes and scientific jargon of the movie is so messy; it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like, just don't bring, don't define the concept so completely that you put yourself in a box where you have to understand at least the basic science of it, or else it's stupid and it doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, there were so many points where I'm just like, people are shooting themselves in the head, and he's literally said, it's your brainwaves that travel to the afterlife, and people are destroying their own brains, thereby ostensibly destroying their ability to travel to any afterlife because the only thing that travels is your fucking brainwaves. Yeah. Like, it's like, all you would have to do is go on the news and at, at bare minimum, bare minimum, just say, like, stop destroying your brain. You're not going to go anywhere. You're just going to be dead, dead. And he can't even do that, which is insane to me. So, like, that was annoying. There's, like, a part where they bring in a corpse and they're going to use this tool on the corpse, which logically doesn't make any sense to me because the assumption is that your brainwaves leave your body and go to another plane yeah. of existence when you die. And this corpse is like, already been dead for hours. So, like, by that logic, there would be nothing left to see when you attach it to this machine that's supposed to show you this other plane of existence. Because the brainwaves are already fucking gone. Yeah. And just from a science experiment standpoint, like, who goes straight to testing on humans? Even corpses. Like, who goes straight to grave robbing and literally a recreation of Kevin Bacon's movie Flatliners before they go to, like, fucking chimpanzees mm -hmm. or pigs? Like, 
who doesn't start on animals? I'm not saying I agree with animal testing, but it just seems like a bizarre leap to go like, I'm going to steal dead bodies from a literal hospital morgue instead of like, I'm going to apply for a research grant so I can get some fucking bonobo chimps. You know what I mean? Like, I I don't, that doesn't make any sense. I think with the movie, like, for me, it occupies like a very strange middle space between there's movies with like, um, do you remember like In Time with Justin Timberlake? Oh, God. Right? It's like... Justin Timberlake and Amanda Seyfried. Yeah. Movie sucked. It, it did suck. But it's like, you kind of knew from the get-go, like, the second you start the movie, you're like, okay, the premise is fun, but you know it's, like, not good. Like, you know it's going to be very messily done, not make much sense, and you're kind of in it for the ride of whatever the movie's going to go. It just felt like shitty Blade Runner. So there's, like, that side of things. And then there's movies which have a concept and really, like, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, really go into it, really have emotional character depth, have really thought through every level of the movie. The relationship, the characters, how the technology is relevant to the storyline. Truman Show is another example, right? The character and the apparatus put around it. Weird that you chose two Jim Carrey movies. That was a coincidence. I literally didn't even (laughs) put the two together. Um, This is odd. (laughs) But yeah, the, the apparatus makes sense to the um, thing, right? This one, it's so in between to me because what I do love is I like the way it portrays science in this religious imagery from time to time. Like the fact that there's a cult around him and like that this afterlife will be thing as though, you know, the new religion, I think this is a pretty clear thesis of the movie or theme of the movie, that the new religion is people believing that science is going to save them and suicide is the answer that science is giving them in this case. And so there's a cool theme, there's cool thematic linkings here. And then like this idea that a line that they talk about a lot is disassociating from one's life and feeling it's not worth it. And then what the afterlife presenting a kind of possibility of trying again. And that becomes more and more literal as the movie goes on. Yeah. And so there's definitely themes of how religion and science like connect together. I actually like how this the scientific apparatuses that they show in the movie are dressed up in this very blasé realism way or like very like it's not shiny sleek sci-fi but it's also not grungy in any way it's just kind of very utilitarian very much like what you'd see in an actual university lab like kind of Mm -hmm. 10 year old outdated equipment that's being all put together as best as possible and and i think and and the way that things look look very realistic so i think there's a cool vibe in all that But when it comes to the emotional core and, like, actually driving a plot and story home in the movie, especially on a rewatch, you realize, like, it really, really did not deliver. Like, it's so messy on so many levels, even though personally I love the concept of the discovery and, like, how people then turn to suicide. But you, you right at the beginning of the movie, you're like, I don't believe in this, that people would follow through with suicide with this discovery. Like... Which is interesting. I think that's just if, a different okay, so conceptual point. Like, if they had have started off the movie where they knew that, like, the afterlife was your opportunity to, like... <laughs> You're just going right into it. Get a... I don't care. The afterlife... It's, it came out in 2017. If you haven't seen it, I don't know. Fucking turn the podcast off and watch it first if you're interested. But, like, okay, so if they had started off the movie with, like, the afterlife or the concept or what we understand of what the afterlife would be is that you get the opportunity to have basically a redo of your biggest regret. 
then I do think, yeah, there would probably be a rash of suicides. But when it's this vague concept of like, the afterlife kind of might exist and your brainwaves go to a different place, but we don't know what any of that means, or if it actually exists, or if your brainwaves just kind of fucking dissipate in the universe. If it's a hellscape, like we have no idea, but there's evidence that like, there might be some type of afterlife. That kind of a vague concept, I just don't see inspiring, like, a group of teenagers to commit group suicide Mm -hmm. on the 50-yard line of a fucking football field. Like, that just seems like such an exaggerated version of what people would react insanely or rashly to. Whereas if you had that, like, immediate concept of, like, you get a redo on your worst regret, yeah, of course, I think a lot of people might actually go through with um, or complete suicide. The other issue is like, and they mention this very, very briefly in the movie. And what they say is like, it's not going to be long or eventually people are going to use this concept of the afterlife to justify murder. And it's like, in what world would that not come up first? Mm -hmm. In what world would there not be somebody trying to use that as a defense in a court case? You know, like somebody kills their spouse and their defense is like, well, they're not dead. Their physical form is just gone. So you can't call this murder because they exist on a different plane now. They're not really dead. So this isn't really murder. Like, why would that not have come up before 4 million suicides? That is insanely unrealistic to me. It was, and yeah, it like to spoil it a bit more. It's like that was obviously used for plot contrivance, so that like security wasn't so intense for that kind of thing, and that allowed certain plot points to happen. Yeah. So it's like, but like, I'm not even saying like a rash of murders would happen. I'm just saying like, if people will literally, legitimately try to use, I was drunk as a actual legal defense in a courtroom Mm -hmm. for why they raped somebody in what world would they not use the afterlife has been proven so this person's not really dead they just exist in a different dimension now as a defense for committing a murder at least one time especially in the united states there is no way that that wouldn't have come up before a rash of four million suicides that's insane yeah I do think one of the more obvious, like, things that happen in the movie is where um, it's when Will's, uh, Will, who's the son, is talking to his father and he's... Jason Siegel. Yeah. He's saying, you know, he they're talking about the article where Will said that he agreed with his father, the afterlife exists and whatnot. But then he says, but I was wrong, right? And so there's this obvious theme. It's like, he's, he doesn't think he's wrong in terms of whether it's true about the universe that this afterlife exists. But what they're talking about now is whether it was ethical for them to have released this information, now, like knowing that all these suicides were going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that is very true. This is what it's like. One of the things I like with the movies is when I think about it, what it gets me going on, like philosophically, quote unquote, there's some interesting things here because there is this thing. It's like scientism. Um, there's a sense in which the, the main thing is the truth. We need to get the truth out there. And whether that has good or bad consequences is something that we should be prepared for as a society. But really, science's job is to find the truth and to tell everyone the truth. Um, and, that's, and this movie's trying to, I think, portray. It's like, but what if the truth is so 
causes so much harm. But in a way, you could say in the movie, if this movie's true about what happens after you die, is it so much harm? Or are these people making a rational choice? So there's, there's kind of interesting conflicts there. Again, the movie doesn't actually dive. It does dive into the issues, I just don't think very well. I, I, don't think, I think its answers I to a lot of stuff are very all over the place. The ending of the movie is, in my opinion, very, very rushed. And it doesn't, like... It's Groundhog Day. It, yeah. Spoiler. The ending to the movie is Groundhog Day. It doesn't... Exp- I, I know it's an emotional vignette sort of thing. But to me, I I don't know. The way the movie's set up, I kind of want it to explain more. But it depends. Like, if you go into it and you might feel it's a kind of horse skull ending. Or uh, maybe... I, I can't think of another movie like that. But where the ending is so bizarre... But the idea of the bizarrity is that you're like, oh, I knew the movie was kind of gearing up for that, and I kind of get why it's bizarre. This one, it really rushes through things, but I think it's a movie that needs more answers. Like, you really want it to show more of what it was trying to express. I really, okay, so a couple things based on what you just said. I do truly, truly feel, despite the conceptual differences, I truly feel like they were trying to do their version of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless yes. Mind. Like, everything about yes. that movie feels like a bad Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind Especially the, the, the romance in it is terrible. Yeah. And it's this very weird, Eternal This weird, awkward, like, manic pixie dream girl romance thing that they're doing that feels very forced. The way the ending is this emotional vignette where it's like this weird conversation between the two characters is literally how Eternal Sunshine ends. Like, it just feels like they're doing a ripoff of Eternal Sunshine with their own, like, sort of concept. Mm -hmm. But it just so happens that their own concept is literally fucking Groundhog Day with science forced into it. So it's like this bad mishmash of much better movies. And because they've mashed these different movies together, they didn't spend enough time on any of these concepts. So, like, Mm -hmm. they didn't spend enough time on the relationship dynamic, what that relationship means or what that means to the overall plot. They didn't spend enough time on the science stuff. They didn't spend enough time on this weird loop thing that they were doing. So you get aspects of these movies that did it better, but you don't get enough to put together a whole new film, especially a movie that's only an hour 42. Not that I'm saying I wish it was longer, but I'm just saying, like, if you're going to do all of these things, you did need more time. Like, a movie that's barely over 90 minutes is not going to be long enough to live out all of these, like, yes. stitched together Frankenstein movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I don't know. I think, I think, too, what's sort of interesting to me is I re- when I think of The Discovery, I think of it as a very, like, sci-fi-esque movie, even though it's not in the future. Well, it's in the very close future. Mm-hmm. Because in the movie, they say 2013 is uh, over a decade ago. So that means that it must be like two, 2023, 24, 25, something like that. But it's like, it's irrelevantly, you know, yeah. uh, uh, close in the future. It's a blip. And But then I look at Eternal Sunshine, and what's funny is I don't think of that as a sci-fi first and foremost. And I wonder if that's a prejudice against like sci-fi's having an emotional core. Because when I think of Eternal Sunshine, I think the characters are so good that that's what stands out to me. And the fact that it's done through a sci-fi apparatus is like coincidental. Mm -hmm. Whereas this movie, it's like the emotional core is so bad that like all that's left for me is it's like, oh, it's a cool sci-fi concept. And then just happens to have characters or whatever. And so it is funny to me that, because especially sci-fi books, 
Sci-fi books have terrible characters, generally speaking, but that was standard for the genre. So it was all about conceptual investigation, really. Or like, oh, go check this out, because this did this science, this, you know, what if a black hole, what if, you know, the planet had this stuff going on, and that's the type of stuff that they're interested Mm -hmm. in. And that's what I like. So I like, I think this movie, even though on a second watch especially, it wasn't very good. I think it goes to show, like, where my trash is at, basically, in sci-fi, where it's like, (laughs) this is a movie that I was really able to not care about all these terrible aspects because I like sci-fi for what it is. Right, but like... It's an interesting lesson in that. I mean, I understand that, and, like, I do agree the characters are terrible and honestly, frankly, pretty boring. Mm -hmm. But, like, even the concept, though, the sci-fi concept, while interesting, is riddled with problems. Yeah. Like, it just, it half the time doesn't make sense. So, like, I don't even understand where your trash is at if you're going for sci-fi concepts, because objectively speaking, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was able to do both and had an interesting sci-fi concept. Yeah. Like, so I don't understand what you're saying. Like, I get get the prejudice of, like, the romance shit. So, like, I do understand that. But, like, it's clearly been proven that, like, you can have conceptual sci-fi and still have, like, all of the other elements that make a movie oh, no. at least reasonably decent to watch. For sure. And, th- and I'm saying that this is this movie is, like, you know, like, you watch tons and tons of horror. And I'm sure there's tons of horror that mm-hmm. you still enjoyed watching, even though you would never be able to defend it to someone who only vaguely likes horror. You're like, this is not for people who aren't horror, right? This is a sci-fi for me where I'm like, I would not, not recommend it to people who aren't at least vaguely interested in, or, like, aren't at least pretty interested in sci-fi stuff. In, even as a sci-fi concept, I don't think it's that strong. But for me, it occupies a bit of a unique space in that this exact idea of how the afterlife relates to science as this idea of, like, regret and redoing your life. There's a lot of stuff that's close to it, but for me, it really, like, got my brain going on certain lines things even though it didn't make sense in their own universe like my my special hatred of it the actual thing that most jarred me out of it is how when they die and they're you're seeing their flat line and you're seeing them go into the afterlife they are immediately in the middle of their redo and it's like it's so immediate and so fast it's like how long is the afterlife or like what is it in this sense it's it's clearly to me it's like reflecting back on the movie it's clearly a plot device thing that's one i think of the biggest problems with the movie is that they don't think enough about how to combine their concepts with with the plot that makes sense well, they clearly just like here's what i want to show so i'm just going to show it immediately it's like but that doesn't make see, sense and i i had trouble with that too and i brought it up to you whereas like genuinely when you see when you see the ending mm-hmm. and you understand that like he's been in a loop the whole time basically yeah. I'm spoiling the whole thing. I don't care. You see he's in the loop the whole time. And she explains to him, like, he goes into the machine. He kills himself to, like, do his redo or whatever. And he sees Isla. And she explains to him that she's not really there. She's in, she's, like, only alive in his memory in this moment. He always starts back at the ferry. Because that's his biggest regret. So basically, they're confirming that it's not really an afterlife. You're just getting an opportunity to redo your own memory. Because she's explaining to him what's going on and why every time he dies, he comes back to the fairy because he was never able to actually save her. She always ends up dying. 
And the only way to save her is to prevent her from being on that ferry in the first place. But presumably at this point, she's already explained that they're in his memory. Yeah. Right? So, like, if they're in his memory, and she's just, A, this anonymous chick that he met on a ferry, and then literally in the next scene, saves her from killing himself. So they barely know each other. They've had a five-minute conversation on a ferry at this point. First and foremost, insanely bizarre that that's his biggest regret, is not saving an anonymous True. stranger on a ferry. True. And not and his biggest regret is not agreeing with his father that the afterlife exists, and thus essentially allowing pe- four million people to commit suicide because of his father's work. How is that not his biggest True. regret? I didn't How think would about he that. not yeah. go back to the point where he like the bad romance did that interview over. and just not do the interview? Like I that's insane. Um so this anonymous stranger killing herself of her own volition, that's his biggest regret. Fine, whatever. She's explained to him that she's alive in his memory. This is his memory. She can't get off the ferry from that point. And he's just reliving his biggest regret and trying to save her. But at every point, she either kills herself or gets shot or whatever. She dies. How could he possibly fundamentally go back to the point of no return for her, which is where her son dies? A point in time that he has no memory of. He wasn't there. They had never met before. And he has no idea of the time frame at which this happened. But somehow he's magically able to go back to her memory of the event of her child dying and save her child. And that thus prevents her from killing herself. So he breaks the loop. Second, second, if it's not a memory (laughs) and it is another dimension and it is an afterlife. She died before him. He's been in the loop for an undetermined amount of time. Presumably she died months before he did. How is this not a moot point? Because her biggest regret is her child dying on her watch. So she would inevitably go back to that moment and prevent her child from dying, which would thus prevent her from ever getting on the ferry and trying to kill herself. So he would never have to prevent her death anyway, because she would do it by preventing her child's yeah. death. So I. So yeah. either way, he wouldn't need to be involved in this. Yeah. Your, your whole analysis is exactly right as the movie does it. I I just want to add like a few things. Like again, this is like being extremely charitable to the movie and like what it's trying to do. But Doesn't I think one thing it. is that it's the movie is trying to thematically place together that it's not really about the afterlife. It's about people wanting to redo things in their life. And so really it's about him being told by her that she regrets her child dying. That's her biggest regret. And so you can imagine, imagine this machine didn't exist at all. It's just... It's about his his wishing that that could be true. And then the movie allows it to be true through magical, through magical means, basically. A DSX machina of him being able to go back to that moment because he remembers the beach. He remembers that she said this thing and then he goes back. You're absolutely right that she would have done it herself. It doesn't make any sense, but it's a magical love story. It's trying to allow that redo to happen. That's almost more infuriating though, because A, based on the confines of their own like 
plot line, he wouldn't be able to do that anyway because he has no idea what point in time this fucking happened. Yeah. This could have been one year prior. It could have been 10 years prior. You have no idea how long ago yeah. she had this toddler. And 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 yeah. secondly, <laughs> it creates this weird white knight male savior complex. We're like hand gesture attacking each other like so much during I know. this argument. <laughs> but it's Let like, it's finish. this weird, it's, I swear to fucking God, it's this weird white knight male savior <laughs> complex thing where this like fucking 30 year old white dude has to save his manic pixie dream girl. And like, he's the only one ca- who can do it. And he needs yep. to white knight her existence instead of letting her solve her own fucking problems in her own afterlife. Absolutely. Like she doesn't even get to save herself when she's dead. That's bullshit. It's you're absolutely right from that perspective, right? I think from the filmmaker's perspective, what the theme is, is that it is from his, and why, you, as you said, with regret, why the, why not the 4 million? Why the girl? Yeah. The girl is because he saw her drown in front of him many, many times, right? He regrets it at, on a personal level. And it obviously reminds right. him of his yeah. own mother. Like, it obviously reminds him of his own mother who also died in a body of water. She killed herself in a bathtub. Yeah. And I get that. Fine. Whatever. But it still seems like bullshit when they make a point in the middle of this fucking movie to bring up how he regrets them ever telling the population that the afterlife yeah. exists, how he is devastated of the ramifications of that, and how they never should have ever brought this research forward, let alone done the research in the beginning. Although... There is no way yeah. that he would think that this one fucking rando that he met for five minutes dying in front of him is a bigger deal because even if he did even if he did if they never announced the afterlife right. existing she, she still wouldn't have ended up killing herself because the only reason she kills herself is to be reunited with the son that died because she knows there's an afterlife yes. so if they didn't tell the world that the afterlife existed presumably she'd deal with her fucking problems no, but, and but okay honestly all this is very very helpful because i didn't make the mom connection strongly enough so because they lines in the movie help piece this together Again, from a, like, super charitable, this is what they're trying to do, they definitely failed to, like, put it all together. The, his father says at a certain moment, he's like, um, it's always been about, uh, no, it's not about the deaths of the thousands, millions of people, it's about your mother, isn't it? And he says, of course it's about yeah. my mother. And so, of course, his yeah. biggest regret is the mother insert being Isla. Right? And so, yeah, in but his, again, real life. the easy solution is if you never announce that the afterlife exists, yeah. presumably Isla isn't going to kill we're, herself we're because she only kills herself to be reunited with her dead son. Right? So, of course, no, you're right. It, of course, you're still. right, Lydia. I'm just saying it's like you can understand why the movie did it this way because it's trying to do it. It's lazy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's lazy. <laughs> it's lazy writing. Everybody watch the movie. It's but lazy. But honestly, this conversation did help me understand why it was trying to put everything together. I do understand the ending a lot better now, even though I, th- I still agree with you, it's very bad. Um, I understand how the dots connect up much better. Um, he just, it's its so weird to me that it's supposed to be romanticized. Right. Because this random, strange <laughs> man essentially made his entire afterlife about this woman that he met for five minutes on a fucking ferry. He invents this entire love and romance with her mm-hmm. in this loop that never existed because she died. 
Like, they never had a romance. That romance was literally in his head. He assumed that if he saved her life, they would fall in love. Mm. That's fucked up messaging. That's true. That's true. That's massively problematic. So not only is she not allowed to save herself in her own afterlife, he also puts her life on a pedestal above the four million others that he has the opportunity to fix a regret for and thus save her life anyway. But he invents an entire romance with this fucking stranger who's just trying to work out her own bullshit and doesn't really have anything to do with him. What do you think? So my last question then. What do you think about what he said that throughout his life, he's always been coming back to that beach? Because that doesn't really make sense, right? If the loop always starts at the ferry, how could he have done stuff earlier in his life that had to do with the beach? Well, because I'm assuming that's just because she mentions like memories survive through the loops. So I'm assuming he's just remembering constantly coming back to the beach where he saves her, but he doesn't remember that that's why he came back to the beach in the first place. So he was at the beach. That's earlier in his life though, that he went back to the beach. So it's before the loop even started. So when he was a kid, he loved going to the beach. His mom would bring him to the beach. Right. Right. So I think there's kind of an intrinsic link between that, between his mom mom bringing him to that beach and this woman who kills herself at the beach that his mom would bring him to before she killed herself. So I think it's linking the body of water to the bathtub where she killed herself and to his childhood. But also, I think it's supposed to be like this underlying intrinsic memory where he comes to that island originally when he's still alive to see his father He stops at the beach to have a moment of contemplation about his life on this island and his childhood on this island because his mom and his dad would bring him to this beach and his mom is dead and he has to see his estranged father. So he's having a moment of contemplation. He sees a woman kill herself and he tries to save her. And then he relives that loop. So he has this embedded memory of coming back to this beach for a moment of contemplation and trying to save this woman. So really... The reason he keeps getting drawn to the beach is because he's trying to figure out why he has this memory of this beach and the memories of her killing herself and how that relates to his childhood with his mother and her killing herself. Mm -hmm. Because it's all, everything we see in the movie is the loop, right? So when he says, it's like I'm drawn here, I come here all the time, really what he's saying is, I've lived this memory Hundreds no, of it times of trying loop, to save you. But I thought you. he said that he went back to the beach many times throughout his life, like even earlier that he was drawn to the beach. But I don't. Times. But he doesn't know he's in a loop at that point, so I don't think he knows what earlier is because there is nothing earlier than the fairy. Interesting. Because the fairy is the beginning of his afterlife. Yeah. So when he says earlier, he could only have meant after the fairy. Yes. So it's just the constant imprint of him coming back to this beach after the fairy. He's just imprinted on this moment of her killing herself and is reliving it multiple times. So he thinks that he's come back to the beach multiple times throughout his life. But really, it's just that one time that he's relived hundreds of times in his like afterlife loop. Mm-hmm. Although presumably he does still remember his original first life, like leading up to that. Yes, but he probably didn't come back to that beach that many times because he was estranged from his father and has indicated that he hasn't seen his father in years. So when could he have come back to the beach? Yeah, and you're right because really it's his childhood when he went to the beach. Because they also say in in the in the reloop of like how he's remembering stuff that he doesn't really remember with the with the room with his childhood bed. Right, he feels a familiarity there. Like, how did you know to come here? 
this room, that we'd be here in this room. Um, and so yeah. that's clearly from loop memory. And so I think you're right about beach memory too, is that he thinks it might be from his childhood, but really it's just that same kind of vague memory of Yes, loop exactly. History. It's an imprint. Yeah. And same with when he says at the beginning, oh, you just look really familiar. It's just him having this like loop thing, right? Because she show like you see a flash of that in the in the loop where she's like, no, like the map like there's always little memories that slip yeah. through and then they do a montage of like he found the bedroom he's at the beach i'm drawn here is one of those yeah. montage memories that she shows so i think it's just the fact that he'd been there so many times trying to save her not that he had actually been there throughout his life yeah i would recommend instead of this movie if people are interested uh i was talking about it during it uh, is primer is a pretty cool time travel movie canadian that has a similar vibe to this one, if you wanted a, a good version of it. I would only recommend this movie, The Discovery, if you're like, if our conversation has really intrigued you, or if you're like really into um, just collecting every sci-fi out there. Because otherwise, yeah, on a second rewatch, yeah. it's probably not worth it. Stacked cast, though. It's yeah. crazy. I mean, it's a lot of people who weren't big until like around that movie came out anyway. But, um, I mean, obviously, Robert Redford and Jason Siegel. Jason Siegel, you know from How I Met Your Mother, played Marshall. Rooney Mara, who I mentioned, is from Girl with a Dragon Tattoo Social Network. But it also has Jesse Plemons, yep. Fargo, season two or three? I'm thinking of ending things. Three, I think. I'm thinking of anything things more recent. Um, and then Riley Keough, who's gotten really big, um, and one of her recent things that she did was The Lodge, which is the movie by the same director who did Goodnight Mommy. Right. A really fantastic Austrian horror still, film. Yeah. That one sounded really cool. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's pretty neat. It's got a similar vibe to, like, Hereditary. And Goodnight Mommy, to be honest. Very esoteric, very atmospheric. Very, like, I don't really know what's going on, but I'm into the vibe. Mm-hmm. She's really good in it. People loved Good Like Mommy. I, I, I was, I volunteered that one for a movie night, uh, um, it, like projected in a room with the movie club thing. People loved it. So, yeah, good one. yeah. I definitely think like I enjoyed. I watched it on my own, and like I did enjoy watching it. I think I watched it on my own, and I enjoyed it. But I do think like it would be a much more fun experience if you're watching it with like other friends of yours, especially if they're like film heads, because it, it's a movie that offers like a decent amount of discussion yeah. for afterwards. Yeah, and we did. We uh, were all smoking and stuff. This was Montreal, so everyone was smoking. Um, and just, like, chatting about it after. My kind it was of a good, It was a good atmosphere. I watched a lot of movies during that, and so I, I'll probably... There's there's one in particular... I don't want to mention it right now, so it's a secret, um, that I hope we do at some uh, at some other episode, because it'll have to be rewatched for me, but I think it's it was a really cool movie that I'm interested to rewatch. Why can't you mention it now? I mean, we can just okay, cut it's it out. Okay, it's well, that was uh, easy. I just don't know yeah. why you wouldn't mention it ahead of time. I just thought it would be fun too. to be like, there's a secret movie coming. Yeah. And then, it's I, like, then in you know, like seven like years later, episodes. I'd be like, yeah. remember, that? remember that? But Fallen Angel, it's a movie set in Hong Kong. I'm not sure what language they're speaking, a dialect of Chinese, I assume. But it's really cool. It's about assassins and like they're, or an assassin and another underground type person um, whose lives kind of, or his handler assassin and his handler and they're falling in love but they never see each other because of how the underground system works that they aren't supposed oh, okay. to like see each other so they they, they smell each other's stuff or they like Ew. feel like um stuff in their places moved after um they've they've like just passed each other in the night sort of thing and you see other characters who are 
doing weird nightlife stuff. And it's just this weird, you know, that feeling of being in an urban setting and when it's really, really like it's like 3 a.m. and you're like walking mm. home or something mm-hmm. and that sense of like emptiness, but also vast world of possibility. Like you're kind of like, I, you know, I don't know how else to explain it. But. Really romanticizing city life. Most of the time when I walk at 3 a.m. alone in a city, I'm worried about being, like, murdered. Okay, I know the scary portion, but when you're, you know, when it's a good walk, when you're, like, with a friend or something, or a night drive, you know, the, the romantic versions of this, that's what yeah. this movie feels like. It really explores people who are in their element in the, in the, in the depths of the night. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and Hong Kong is obviously one of the greatest cities for pure urbanness. Mm. But yeah. I really want us to do the house that Jack built. Yeah. I was only I mentioning just, that one because I, I remembered the movie night I stuff. Wanted, that was really fun. I just wanted to be included. No. Okay. Hurtful. We're shutting it down. That's getting cut. Hurtful. You just never let me express myself after I had like a 10 minute rage fit about this fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> just like loudly and combatively tell you how shitty this movie is. Yeah. oh my god i also feel like so i got my nails back this is unrelated you can cut it out if you want but i got my nails back i got fake nails um because i love having long (laughs) nails and i haven't had them for i didn't want it to sound like i never had nails in the first place like i was just waiting for all of my nails to regrow because that'd be weird um but i got i got gel nails um and i haven't had long nails in like probably a year um, and now I just feel like my sassy hand gestures have leveled up like 10,000%. <laughs> it's just, it's way more effective to have these hand gestures when you have like inch long nails. For sure. I'd like to do like nails, earrings, like a little androgynous at some point. Do it. We can get our nails done together the next time you're in town. <laughs> That'd be so fun. I'll take you to my nail lady. All right. Do you want to? Look how pretty. Just look at them. Yes, I, I was noticing them, actually. I was like, they look pretty cool. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Out? We I can... What rap, rap, I don't know what it's called. And end. We're going to end now. <laughs> we done we now. We clearly disassociated from the film entirely and are just talking shit at this point. So <laughs> it seems like a natural end to this episode. We're so bad at this. You can follow us on Twitter at FansLabPod. Um, please follow us on Twitter. Please message us. Send us your recommendations. Like, we want to hear from you. Tell us what movies you'd like us to talk about. Or tell us if you hate us. I don't know. I'd be interested in that. <laughs> you can also follow us individually. Our Twitters are linked in the podcast Twitter. But mine is, I think it's at Lydia D. Gillespie. Because my own name was already fucking taken on Twitter, which is <laughs> bullshit. And you're uh. something. At Joseph uh, underscore Lewitsky. Or Don. There you go. Who knows? It's in, the, it's in the podcast Twitter. Find us, message us, DM us, tweet at us, do whatever. But just tell us what kind of content you want to see. Like, I don't, I don't want to have to keep picking shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be fun to hear. Yeah. Um, probably, yeah, the first person who really gives us a solid recommendation. We'll just watch it. Yeah, like, we won't even question it. If you recommend <laughs> something, like, unless it's, like, fucked up or porn, like, we'll watch it. Human centipede. Mm. Yeah, I'm gonna go hard pass on that. But unless it's like massively fucked up, like if you recommend like Cannibal Holocaust or like Serbian film or like weird like, porn, like we're not gonna watch that. But <laughs> if you recommend a real genre movie, like we'll watch it. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Okay, bye.